This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 17th, 2020, the Bar Bar Bar, Bar Bar is Gone edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from her home in New Haven, Connecticut. Howdy, Emily. Good morning. Hey, David. And from his home in Gotham City, New York City, Manhattan, John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. On today's GabFest, the shocking Russian hack, we will talk to security expert Alex Stamos about what happened, how bad it is, and whether it can be fixed or remedied. Then Attorney General Bill Barr is out. Why is he gone? What terrible things can happen in the 34, 33 or so days left without him as attorney general. Not that there weren't terrible things happening with him as attorney general, but whatever. Then the battle over Joe Biden's cabinet. Everyone is unhappy about it, which must mean it's a great cabinet, I guess. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. We are joined for our first segment by Alex Namos, who's the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory. In a previous life, he was also the chief security officer of Facebook. There are reports this week Alex, that some clever and highly resourced people have broken into basically, well, who knows what, everything, certainly some of the most secure aspects of the American government, maybe corporations. Uh, We are only beginning to understand what was compromised and what may have been taken. So uh, insofar as you you're kind of up to speed on this, what what has happened? How are we burgled? And what what do we know about what is going on right now? Sure. For first off, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the Gabfest. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you guys are covering this. Um, so, let's like to tell a little bit of the story. We got to think about the different groups in Russia, right? So, there's three main intelligence agencies uh, in Russia. The GRU is the one that we've often talked about uh, because they were behind the DNC hack, the John Podesta hack, a lot of election issues. They're the military intelligence folks. They're like a sledgehammer, right? They're, they are. They will hit you in the face very hard, and it is never very subtle. There's the FSB who does internal security, and they're very scary people, and they have various hacking groups of different levels of skill. And then there's the SVR. The SVR are the people that I'm sure you all watch the Americans uh, as political fans. So that's the yes. SVR, right? Yeah, that the part of the KGB that did overseas intelligence, the first directorate, became the SVR. They... If the GRU is a sledgehammer, the SVR is a scalpel. They have always had the best hackers of all the Russian intelligence agencies, and they are the people behind this. And they pulled off what looks to be one of the most impressive intelligence gathering operations in the history of the world, I think, when this is over. So what happened was sometime in March, the SVR was able to break into a company that makes some really critical IT software. It's called SolarWinds. 
probably none of you have ever heard of it. Most consumers have never heard of it, but it's a very popular piece of software among IT professionals. It's used by big companies to manage their network devices, right? So if you run a big company, you've got thousands of network devices, you need to manage them, you install this software. That means the software is installed in a place that is very, very privileged. It has lots of power in the network because it can talk to all these different devices and it has to be able to log into all these devices. And so the SVR broke into this one company, SolarWinds, and then they put a backdoor into it, their software, that was then intentionally downloaded, it looks like, by about 18,000 customers. So 18,000 customers went, updated the software, and in doing so, brought this SVR backdoor into their network. It then called out very subtly and said, here I am. And so the SVR at that point, as these people installed, somewhere in Moscow, there was a computer screen that had a shopping list of now all of the organizations across the world that they could break into. And then they picked very carefully which organizations off that shopping list they cared a lot about. And then human beings would go back and on the keyboard go and control the computer inside of those organizations and then go spread out and put more and more malware and go find information and exfiltrate it. This was only caught because one of the companies they picked is a company called FireEye, which is a professional security company. They caught it, reverse engineered it, figured it out, and then told everybody else. And so FireEye is doing their own internal investigation. But now what we're dealing with is the fact that there are 18,000 companies during which the SVR could have waltzed in this door anytime between March and December. And we have no idea how many have been hit. Right now, what we know for sure is the Department of Defense the Department of Homeland Security, the Treasury Department, part of the Commerce Department, and a variety of other of private companies, definitely they utilize the back door. But the the kind of crazy, this is ongoing right now, because while that initial back door has been closed, um, Microsoft worked together with FireEye, they took over that control channel, they took over the system that allowed the SVR to control it, so they can't get in that door anymore. If they walked through any time between March and December, they could have planted much more subtle ways to get back in. And some of those things might not wake up for months or years. Um, and so the metaphor I used was like, this is like the iron harvest where every year French farmers still find bombs, you know, and, and Belgian and German farmers of bombs from World War One and World War Two. It's going to be the same thing for years that we're going to be finding exploits that were planted in these networks by the SVR for a very long period of time because they had a, a pretty significant amount of time during which they could go into a huge number of organizations that are very critical. So that's completely terrifying and disturbing. And what the hell do we do now? Like, that just sounds like almost an insoluble, colossal problem. And why is it FireEye that is figuring this out and not our government? Well, that is that is an interesting question. I mean, there, there's a lot of things we've got to do. I, we have to respond specifically to this issue. That's going to be incredibly hard because there's not 18,000 teams on the planet that can go and hunt for hackers at the quality of, that we're talking about here. And so how we do that is just going to be spectacularly difficult. On the government side, there's a bunch of things that uh, we got to think about. I, I wrote a Washington Post op-ed. I had three initial things there. The overall thrust first is that we have to treat defense as importantly as offense and intelligence gathering, right? Traditionally, the U.S. government has never really centralized its defensive work, that the responsibility of defending both government computers and the, the systems of private companies have, has been smeared across a bunch of different organizations. That changed a bit two years ago when they created CISA under the DHS, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. They love security so much, they put the uh, the word in twice. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> 
you know, so CISA centralized a lot of this responsibility. The first director of that is named Chris Krebs. He did a really good job of building that up and then was fired by Donald Trump for telling the truth. Um, in fact, CISA, I think at this point has no more political appointees. So there are you know, career civil servants who are, who are doing their best, but they, there's nobody up top who kind of has the pull to be able to do the interagency process. CISA has 2,200 employees. The National Security Agency, which is one of 17 different intelligence agencies in the United States has 40,000 just by itself. So, you know, we, we put all of our efforts behind the offensive stuff of reading the email of the Chinese Communist Party of blowing up Iranian centrifuges. We don't think about the defensive side. And when you run the world's largest and most technologically sophisticated economy, it turns out you're also the biggest target in the world for this kind of stuff. So one, we just got to rebalance that. Another thing we've got to do is we've got to start to bring some of this expertise in at the high level. So the, the truth is, is that Washington, D.C. has for a very long time um, treated cybersecurity as something that's like best done by lawyers and public policy uh, generalists, which is fine. Like there's a lot of policy and legal people who have important things to contribute here, but you would never have like a malpractice attorney be the Surgeon General of the United States. And that is effectively how we treat all of our cyber positions in the United States. And then the third thing we're really missing is we're missing somebody to kind of do the postmortem and to help us explain what went wrong. So when a plane crashes, we have the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, that is very well respected, that they don't do all the work themselves, but they pull together the work of all the different uh, you know, engineers and scientists and forensic examiners. And then they say, this is what went wrong. This is the bolt that failed on the plane all the way up to the organizational decisions inside the airline that allowed that bolt to fail. Nobody does that for cyber. And as a result, we end up not learning and we end up not even understanding most of the stuff that happened. So of those 18,000 organizations that might've been hit, it's completely unclear how many of them will actually ever hear were breached because there's no responsibility for most companies to do a disclosure unless the data includes personal data, credit card numbers and emails and stuff. The SVR does not care about your credit card number. They don't care about your social security number. What they want are national security secrets. And there's, there's not a mechanism that requires companies to report that. So we need to change our laws that it's not about breach, but about intrusion, that if you've been broken into, you have to declare it. We're going to have to probably give companies civil liability protections so that they are, they want to be responsible and they want to talk publicly and they don't spend seven years with class action attorneys going after them. And then we're going to need a government agency, probably under CISA, that can go and investigate. And what would be nice is six months from now, if we had a 500 page report of all the things that went wrong first inside of Solar Winds and then in all these other companies. But right now that's not going to happen. And, and as a result, we're not going to learn anything. So, Alex, if uh, you could just scare us a little bit more in a couple of months or a couple of weeks or even six months, maybe. What stories will there be where the second paragraph says um, this is undoubtedly the result of uh, the Russian hack of solar winds? So the kinds of headlines we will see will be discussions of breaches in other companies where it is a mystery of how they initially broke in and that the assumption will be, well, these folks had solar winds attached. This is actually going to be, it's going to be like with the vaccine issues where people are going to get sick and they had a vaccine and you don't know if it's linked or not because people just get sick anyway. It's going to be the same thing for years because you're talking about Almost every Fortune 500 company was hit here. So whenever any of them has a breach by the Russians, the initial question is going to be, well, we had solar winds installed six months ago. Could this possibly be related? What about DOD and like our government secrets? Yes. And so I, so to be clear, there's no evidence that this was effective on classified networks. So the way the command and control works here is it only can work on networks that are connected to the Internet to 
to jump an air gap, uh, to jump out of a network that is physically separated from the internet, you would need a different kind of mechanism that nobody has found in this case. Yes, I think what we could see is Russia stole designs uh, from the defense industrial base. Rocket Company finds that all of their data had been accessed on their hypersonic vehicle testing. You know, what we've seen the Chinese do is go and grab large amounts of unclassified government data and then combine all of it to find America's spies in China, right? So if you take the OPM uh, SF-86s plus the Anthem data, which tells you everybody who got healthcare insurance from the CIA, plus the Saber system, which is all of the travel, plus the Starwood of everybody staying in every hotel around the world. When you put those together, it's a pretty good way to find spies that the United States has sent out. And the, the things that I have heard is that the Chinese have been very good at rounding up networks of people we have either planted or turned within the, the People's Republic of China. So what we might see is a bunch of stories about, well, you might not even see the stories, but one of the things that might happen is we might have people who are spying on behalf of the United States and Russia, something bad happens to them. And it's never figured out why. And it's because some data that pointed to them from an unclassified network was able to be pulled out. It, it's just, it's very hard to predict, but they had access to everything, right? And so really the question is, is how aggressive were they during that time from March to December? How many people did they put on doing the second phase here? Because the first phase, they got lots of leverage. They got into 18,000 organizations with one hack. The, the second part's much more human intensive when you then have to get on the keyboard and you have to go after a specific organization. And so the question is, is how many times they did that. And right now we don't really have good data to demonstrate whether it was a hundred organizations or a thousand. So I think there's a kind of um, symmetry question here, which is, uh, is the proper response or is it, is it a, is it a possible response for us to um, retaliate by doing something bad to the people who've done this to us is a proper response to simply for us to just up our offensive capabilities and just do as bad to them as they've done to us? Or is the proper response to try to call a truce and say, hey, let's let's not do this uh, and see if we can get our our enemies to agree to sort of say, put limits on the amount of hacking we're going to permit in this fashion? So it's an interesting question. It's an area for which I don't have as much expertise. So I've been mostly talking about how do we put the shields up, which I think is something we have to do. An interesting issue is that the United States has never tried to establish a norm that you can't hack for espionage. In fact, we have explicitly effectively said that that's an okay thing. The most aggressive deal that's ever been made between two countries in this area, I believe, was a deal between President Obama and President Xi to reduce the amount of hacking the Chinese were doing against American companies. When they did that deal, they explicitly excluded national security hacking. Effectively, both sides said that the Ministry of State Security, the People's Liberation Army, the National Security Agency, and U.S. Cyber Command could still do their jobs. What you wouldn't have is hacking of pharmaceutical companies and aerospace and other kinds of just economic competitors. Did it work? Uh, it kind of worked for a little bit, yes. Uh, that deal worked a bit that the attacks against... The, the interesting thing about China is that you have like the centralized attacks, but you also have individual companies hiring hackers to go break into their American competitors. And that second class of attack is reported to have reduced... You know, the data is not very firm. But when we had a chance, we specifically said, we're still going to be hacking you for espionage. And so... That this is espionage. Like, there's no good examples of them causing any damage. Although they could have caused a lot of damage with this excess, they only stole stuff. That's what we have effectively said that we're going to allow and that we want to do ourselves. So, one, I don't see the United States retaliating because this is the kind of thing that we do all the time. 
how you would actually deter this kind of thing is also a big question because there's such a high leverage benefit here for them that you would have to really, really, really punish Russia for them not to take the advantage of with one hack, they can get to 18,000 organizations, right? And from their perspective, we spend tens of billions of dollars on our offensive hacking. We have huge, huge groups of it. They just can't live up to the standard we set from a number of people and amount of money spent. And so they need to have these really cool hacks if they're going to keep pace with the United States. So I actually think it's unlikely just because of the way that we have acted as a country in the past. So Alex, um, I guess if you're the Biden administration, how red are the flashing lights? I mean, you said this is an, you know, incredibly impressive and and intricate, but should this send them into whatever the highest level of panic is, or is this a, a, a massive warning shot? Give us some sense of how freaked out they should be. Well, when it, and when it comes to defending government networks against attack, I think this is about as bad as it gets. Like This is the equivalent that if you were the Treasury Secretary and you were given a Dow that had just dropped 5,000 points, right? And that, the, you know, this is, the, the Biden cyber team is inheriting a massive cyber recession from the Trump team, and they will spend the next couple of years mostly digging out of this specific incident. That is crazy. So when you were talking, Alex, about the National Transportation Safety Board, you made me think about the fact that those kinds of agencies and efforts were put into place in the 1970s in the United States, and we have not had the same kind of legislation and a creation since then. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit because we do have the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, but in general. And so I just wonder how hopeful you are that Congress and the new administration is really going to jump on this and get it and do something. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some hope in that there continues to be a bit of a bipartisan consensus on cybersecurity issues. There are members of, of the House and the Senate who care a lot about this. Um, who have found ways to work together. The last NDAA, which we'll see whether President Trump rejects it over Confederate generals uh, and Section 230, but assuming it gets signed, the NDAA has a bunch of cyber stuff in it that was agreed to in a bipartisan basis. So I do think it's possible. I think that probably the hard part is going to be you know, kind of your standard Republicans don't like regulation and Democrats don't like liability reform. And I think to make this work, the difference between the NTSB and the cyber issue is that these people are victims of a crime. So, you know, when the NTSB investigates Boeing, the enemy against the 737 MAX is physics and the mistakes of engineers and gravity and human failure and such. The enemy here are professional hackers that work for the Russian intelligence agencies. It's an adversarial thing. And so we have to be careful to not do kind of the the full model of strict legal liability for every victim of a crime because it is going to disincentivize people to know that they were the the victim. Whatever happens here is going to have to be very carefully constructed to try to get companies to come forward to say something bad happened. We want to voluntarily discuss it and in return that they're not dealing with lawsuits for the next five years. And so from the Republican side, that means another government bureaucracy. From a Democrat side, it means you have to stand up against the plaintiff's bar. And those two things are going to have to happen if we want to treat this reasonably. Because right now, the only regulatory structure we have here is class action lawsuits, mostly shareholder lawsuits. And it's a complete and total disaster, right? Like I I went through this. I was the chief security officer of Yahoo. We had a breach uh, by the Russian FSB, a different agency. And we spent years of 
getting deposed and emails getting read. And that's fine, right? Like I took a big job. I'm going to have to spend a bunch of time in depositions. What made me angry was not that I had to do all that. It's that nothing came out publicly. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of depositions and email and such. And the outcome was a bunch of guys in Florida got 35 million bucks. A bunch of Yahoo users got gift cards. And then all of this information of what was the core issues and what we could have done better to fight against the FSB got wrapped up behind a protective order. That's a disaster, right? Like it's just the worst possible way to, to regulate a very technically complicated issue like this. Um, and so I think we, we're going to have to cut the corner and, and both sides are going to have to give something up to get there. Alex Damos is the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory. Alex, thank you so much for clarifying this horrifying episode for us. Come back another day with something cheerier. Probably don't get a lot of cheery coffee. If you have me on, it's probably been a bad week. I'm sorry, but thanks for for doing that. Thank you, Alex. I want to take a minute to tell all of our new listeners about Slate Plus, which is Slate's membership program. Slate Plus members support all the work we do here at Slate, and we give them a lot of benefits in return, such as no ads on any Slate podcasts and bonus segments on many Slate shows, including here on the GabFest. Every week we do an extra segment just for members where we dig a little bit deeper, get a little bit more personal and loose, like my incredible, amazing, genius idea about Love Actually. We also do full-on emergency episodes of the podcast every once in a while that are in reaction to some breaking news or a big news event. We just did a few around the election and around Trump getting COVID. And those emergency episodes are often available only to our Slate Plus members. And finally, Slate Plus members never hit the paywall and will never hit the paywall on Slate.com. So if you have some extra money at the end of the year and you want to keep supporting the GabFest and keep supporting everything at Slate, I would ask you to consider becoming a member. It's $35 for the first year. You get a free two-week trial. And then it's $59 a year after that. So please go sign up. It really matters a lot to us. It helps us a lot. And you can do that at slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And FYI, our topic this week for our Slate Plus segment is going to be, uh, we're going to dig deeper into John's incredible 60-minute story about excited delirium, which is a really shocking and it's just like a shocking and, and heartbreaking story that he did for 60 minutes. And we're going to talk more about it. Again, slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
Bill Barr resigned as attorney general to spend the holidays with his family. This deeply hilarious separation of the attorney general and his president has happened in the last month of the Trump presidency. Emily, how did we get to a point where this attorney general who has bent and torched and damaged so much that DOJ people hold sacred or thought was sacred, yet he is not enough. He is not enough for the president. I have a theory. I'm excited that I came up with this theory. Could be wrong, but I'm going to oh. put it out there. <laughs> Ooh, I'm gonna, come on, wing it down. Okay. My theory is that Bill Barr and Donald Trump were always using each other. It was a mutual transaction, and Bill Barr was getting a lot out of the relationship. He is older. He got this second act as attorney general. He was totally unlikely kind of dark horse candidate who came in from the side corner who came in from the whatever who came in from the back of the line because he played to Trump's desire to see the Mueller investigation as compromised and illegitimate. So he was down for a lot of the politicization of the Justice Department. He was down for, you know, changing General Flynn's guilty plea. He was down for potentially messing around with Roger Stone's conviction. But he was not down for this last bananas act of pardoning, like, I don't know who, Donald Trump himself or Rudy Giuliani, because there's nothing in it for Barr at this point. And I think also these bananas allegations of voter fraud, which Trump continues to make up to the moment that our show is taping, even though the Electoral College has voted. And what is it? Joe Biden said 80 judges have ruled against him, something like that. It's just embarrassing. And I think with a few weeks left to go and as much of his agenda rolled out as he was going to get, Bill Barr is saying, okay, this last piece of my legacy, no, I'm going to hold on to some kind of shred of dignity here. It's no longer worth it to me. John. John is posed like the thinker. I well, no, I I was. Uh, He's I, considering whether it makes any sense. No, it all. Yeah, no, no, that seems um, plausible. I think also there was when he I think the president was reportedly, according to several different accounts, unhappy with the attorney general when he said there was no evidence of um, of voter fraud in the work that they'd done. Um, and the president was unhappy that he hadn't launched investigations into Hunter Biden and other people that the president considers his enemies. So, And then the president got so mad that Barr hadn't publicized the fact that there was an investigation into Hunter Biden, right? It wasn't right. that he hadn't launched them. He had launched them, but he hadn't, he'd refused to publicize them. He hadn't broken the Justice Department's own previous rules by publicizing them. Right. Which, which um, Emily, as you're evaluating the bar, the bar on bar, um, where do you put that? The fact that he didn't let slip that there was an inve- that the investigation into Hunter Biden was as, as far along as it was during the election period. Yeah, I'm surprised by this. This and the sort of uh, fizzling out, at least thus far, of the Durham investigation, which is, of course, like the probe into the probers, right? The investigation of the FBI and the um, folks who were investigating the Russia potential, what's her word? Collaboration? No. Collusion. Thank you. Collusion. I was surprised by all of that because I think that that use of the Justice Department could have affected the election. And I did not think that Barr had scruples about that because he was so contemptuous of the Russia investigation and of the notion that you would hold the president accountable for, you know, his actions 
including um, the sort of quid pro quo call to the Ukrainian president. But that was a dog that didn't bark in the election. And I don't know whether it's because the other prosecutors who were involved in it would not stand for being used in that fashion, or if Barr had some kind of principled response to what they were doing. I sort of think I, it was the former, not the latter, but I don't know. And I do I, think it's, uh, it's, it's the one thing about Bill Barr that surprised me. Well, I, I actually think there's a sort of semi-micro theme in this, which is that I actually think had he announced a Hunter Biden probe, uh, the Durham piece I'm not sure about, but had he announced a Hunter Biden probe in October, it would have been seen as so glaringly, grotesquely cynical and that it, would have ca- it wouldn't have had the impact that it, it was supposed to have. That's I actually possible. think that we reached a point in the election where any action that the administration took in that way would have been, would have not had, it would have been counterproductive. It wouldn't have had the impact and it would have sullied Barr himself in ways that he was not interested in sullying himself. And I also feel that's the same thing with the voter fraud is that like, why would, but you know, Barr doesn't, you know, he, he knows the writings on the wall. Why would he embarrass himself with something that was so clearly wrong and was not going to, not going to get what he wanted it was going to be counterproductive to what he wanted and just make him look worse for history. So I think he gets to he I think he he recognized it wasn't going to help his cause and therefore he let it go. I mean, that makes sense, except that, like, was the writing really on the wall? I mean, it was a close election. And also, Barr changed the rules, allowing for investigations, you know, much closer to election and some discussion of them. And Barr issued a memo authorizing voter fraud investigations on November 9th after the election, which at the time seemed ominous because that's when all these allegations and lawsuits were starting to bubble up. So it just seemed like Barr was making moves in the direction that Trump wanted that was more corrupt and more glaringly cynical. And then he didn't follow through. And maybe he was pacifying Trump and knew that if he did something, that would allow him to stay. I don't know. John, I have a question for you about all of this, about the whole grand sweep of it. You're, you in your put on your presidential uh, scholar hat. Do you have that? Is that nearby? Yes, exactly. Where is it? <laughs> yes, let me. Can you go get that? Let me add the batteries. Uh, um, yeah. So, so Trump is, it's not, I wouldn't say it's, it's quite at the level of a purge. For one thing, Barr seems to have kicked himself out. It didn't seem to have been that Trump demanded that he leave. But he did boot Defense Secretary Esper. He seems to want to get rid of CIA Director Haspel in the final days. There are these kind of moves to install various um toadies in in high-level jobs throughout the government in the final days. What a, a, is there any precedent for this? And B, what can you accomplish by doing that in the last month of an administration? That's what puzzles me. Well, I think that um, in terms of precedent, um, I don't, I can't think of anything where there was certainly not this feeling of wholesale firings beforehand. Because what's the point? Now, in the in the Trump case, the point is declassification. So he's trying to get declassified information that will, he thinks, exculpate him and or, and I don't know the specifics of this, but you could imagine this, and, and I'd like um, 
Emily's Emily's take on the new guy who's going to take over for Barr and whether the the at least in the in the papers it sounds like he's you know seems like a different kind of fellow than a than a tor- I guess his name uh, his name's Rosen Jeffrey um, Rosen Jeffrey um, is different than than your previous than Barr and Sessions and um, so anyway you could imagine using the the institutions in their last minute to continue to raise questions release information. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin held a uh, Senate hearing looking into election irregularities, which was a, a bit of a circus, and it didn't reveal anything, really, but it was a circus and a platform for the president's worldview. And we've seen how powerful in the in the 41 days or so, however many it was between the election and Mitch McConnell declaring Joe Biden the president-elect, we saw how much and how powerful what the president could do and all of his allies who wanted to curry favor with his wing of the party, or maybe not his wing of the party, just his party, you know, how powerful that was. So he can use the institutions to continue that narrative. I don't think Jeffrey Rosen, there's nothing in his record that suggests he's going to be up for the kind of circus performance, right? Like, it's one thing to hold a Senate hearing. That's like a staged way of getting behind Donald Trump. It's another thing to go in and start prosecuting people for stuff they didn't do. Everything I've read about Jeffrey Rosen suggests that he's like a very conservative by the book guy and he's just going to like babysit the Justice Department until the Biden folks show up. Now, saying that, I'm a little worried because (laughs) people also thought that Barr was going to be the grown-up in the room. Not me, but other people, and they proved to be wrong. So we'll see. But I want to talk a little bit about the Justice Department more broadly. You know, what has Barr accomplished? Well, he was part of the incredibly successful project of putting very conservative people on the judiciary. Like, hundreds of them now serve. Check. Check. He has moved the department toward protecting what he sees as fundamental religious freedoms, for example, by backing the churches and other religious organizations that have been um, filing lawsuits against coronavirus-related restrictions. Check. Uh, I think he has brought in um, voting rights or other civil rights matters actions on behalf of white people arguing for reverse discrimination. He has threatened to sue, for example, Yale University over its affirmative action policies. Check. Check. Uh, And, you know, also there's this big antitrust enforcement action now happening against Facebook, which has much more bipartisan support than the other moves I just named. But, you know, you see... And you forgot one. You forgot one. What I forgot. Tell me. Killing spree, executing... 15 people in this presidency, including like a rush to get people executed in the final days of it. I am so glad that you remembered that. That is a really sobering part of his legacy which, as well. Uh, which just, I mean, I, you know, I, it is ludicrous for me to talk about anyone's religious beliefs and how they connect to their, how they live their life. But Barr is a, like a, you know, is a, has been a very devout Catholic and is outspoken about his his Catholicism when it comes to abortion and yet, you know, to, to be, to preside over this, these murders of people is, uh, you know, that's something. Yeah. So you've seen him be a very effective in a number of, um, really important ways. And now he's getting the hell out of Dodge just in case the whole thing just like really gets embarrassing and cracks up in the last month. And, you know, Trump starts like issuing pardons, like they're confetti. Emily, also, we should note that that Barr changed um, special counsel John Durham's classification, right? So that he is protected 
to and allowed to continue his investigation under the Biden presidency, right? Absolutely. Now he can only be removed from good for good cause. And it will be like a big political hoopla if Biden tries to do that. So, yes, that is also important. Oi. Before we end this topic, I just we got to note that, you know, this was the week the Electoral College um, finalized Biden's victory, called him the president elect. And what I wonder is that for those lawmakers like McConnell, did they think declaring Biden president elect because the Electoral College would would do what exactly? Because what we learned in the previous several weeks and what we see from the president's continued behavior, as Emily mentioned, is that the the facts and process and tradition and norms don't matter to this claim of a of a uh, stolen election. So what did they think would happen? Um, did they think a page would really be changed, turned, or do you guys actually see something that did change and was different in terms of the conditions that prevailed, you know, in the in the several weeks beforehand? Well, I think something changed because Mitch McConnell is the most powerful person in American politics besides the president. His declaration, just because of who he is, carries an institutional weight in the Senate, and he can control to a certain extent what happens in the Senate. And and when he makes the determination that we're, there's not going to be monkey business and shenanigans, and we're not going to waste a lot of time and embarrass ourselves and force people to pick a side and a vote uh, that will will force them to choose, you know, force them to look bad before Trump supporters. That's important. I don't think he did it out of any, you know, deep love of country or deep, you know, ex- belief in the institutions. But it's it, it is important that Mitch McConnell said something. I mean, doesn't it seem like he was worried about the impact on the Georgia Senate runoffs and also a big divisive fight in his own caucus on January 6th? Like if there was pressure to get out there and, you know, vote for Congress rejecting the electors and that divided the Republican Party, like the Republicans in the House divided almost evenly over joining that completely bogus Texas lawsuit challenging the election results. And if you saw that kind of division and you have, you know, like Trump's slavish loyalists giving the other people who won't join in a hard time. And they're like a hundred people on the other side. That seems bad for the Republican image, right? Mm -hmm. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Joe Biden is on track to appoint a very old set of cabinet officials, but also a, a cabinet full of milestones. We will have the first assuming people are confirmed, big asterisk, the first black secretary of defense in Lloyd Austin, the first gay cabinet official in Pete Buttigieg, the most women in the cabinet ever, the first Latino heads of, I think, both HHS and DHS, the first woman to head the Treasury Department. So why, John, is everyone grumbling so much about this? Well, they're grumbling. This is a, this is, they're grumbling because they always grumble at this Period, because you have this inevitable clash between the two roles of a president. A president is a person who builds a team to govern, but he's also the head of a coalition, uh, the coalition of his party. And those two things are in in conflict because he's trying to build a team with a certain people who, um, 
you know, have certain expertise and experience and with whom he's comfortable, and they may or not match up with the people who are part of his coalition. In the Democratic Party, it has a different cast than in the Republican Party. There's more diversity. There's more kind of more parts of the coalition to pay attention to. And there's a greater belief in diversity for its own sake, which is a which is an interesting part of this history, too, because in the past, people would say, well, we want a, a cabinet that looks like America. And and the public good at the heart of that was the idea that you wanted um, Americans to see themselves reflected in their government. Um, but the there's the science of um, management and organizations have found or has found recently that diversity has all kinds of benefits, not just because you want somebody in the room who represents one of the interest groups that's going to be affected by the policy you make or who has uh, attentiveness to um, uh, certain kinds of issues that that, you know, old white males don't, but also that a diversity of viewpoints makes better decisions um, and, and better decision making. But there's, you know, there are only so much, so many slots to pick, and you do, you know, it's a complicated kaleidoscope of relationships, and also it's not only do you have to pick from different groups, but you have to give them sufficiently high positions, you know, cabinet rank or somebody who's going to be seen a lot in the public, and there's just more requests than there are posts to be able to fill, and also there's a lot of jockeying always at the beginning of administrations because this is a proxy for whose voice is going to be heard when the actual decisions start to be made. Emily, though, I feel like John didn't say two of the words that that you would want to hear, maybe six of them. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, progressives. Like It does seem that this cabinet uh, has not not acknowledge the existence of the the left of the Democratic Party. It doesn't seem to have embraced the left of the Democratic Party in any meaningful way. Am I missing something? I mean, I think that's right. Although I feel like the economic picks were fairly progressive. Like Janet Yellen isn't, you know, an Elizabeth Warren person, but I think the left was braced for someone who would have been much more, much more averse to their ideas. And then some of the people in the um, Council of Economic Advisors and that other thing that sounds like that, but has another different National Economic Council, the yeah. National Economic yeah. Council, two bodies, which I will forever mix up and don't understand <laughs> how they are different from each other, but they seem really important in giving economic advice. They had some um, fairly progressive voices on them. I wanted to go back to the point you were making, David, about age or even just like, We've seen these people before, like they already had their dance in town, like Tom Vilsack. Why is Tom Vilsack again the secretary of agriculture when they had this really good candidate, Marsha Fudge, who is in Congress, who was on the committees that oversee food stamps and other nutritional programs, which is like a huge part of what the USDA does. And it seems like Vilsack is like a big ag guy. I found that particularly disappointing in all of this, although I realized that the USDA is not the most important government agency. Also, also, didn't they didn't they put Fudge? Didn't she get HUD? Yeah, she got HUD, and that like, seems that that like HUD as like oh, we're going to put a senior black official in HUD. Like I I hate that. It's weird. Irritates me. Yeah, it irritates me. I had the same feeling, but I mostly feel like there are some missed opportunities here to showcase and promote the next generation of Democratic leaders. I mean, yes, Buttigieg is bringing down the age of the whole 
mess of them by like a few years on his own. But there are other people like that. And, you know, historically, I don't think, well, John can tell us, I don't really think the cabinet has been the place that like makes you a big star in your party. But when we have uh, politics, which is so much focused increasingly on the media and national coverage, maybe there's chances to change that and actually use some of these positions to create the future. And I feel like we're there's a lot of looking back into the past. John, am I being unfair here? Well, it depends. You're adding a third criteria, which just makes it more complicated. I mean, I, because then your third criteria is, are they, you know, are the per- is the person you're picking and the place you're putting them a possible platform for their future? You know, think about all the things that, that, that Biden and, and his team are trying to, to manage. We've talked about cybersecurity. That's a huge, blinking, flashing red light. Now multiply that by all the issues a president has to to manage. And so he has to he has to figure out how much of his attention when he builds this team goes to managing those crises, people with whom he's comfortable, people who have certain kinds of experience, how much goes to the coalition building piece, and then how much goes to giving a platform piece. And also, do those all have to be taken care of in the first hundred days when you're trying to recover from a pandemic and an economic collapse? The final thing I'd say is it's an interesting question, Emily, about building a platform for the future and letting your cabinet picks have autonomy. And it'll be interesting to see how much uh, free reign President Biden gives to his team. And if that's the case, then then it will be a platform. And you'll see people try to kind of up their their exposure as they build their own personal political profile in, in the cabinet ranks. Do, do you think, Emily, given what John was just saying, that is I used to think cabinet didn't matter. There's this whole period, I think, really during the Clinton years when it was cabinet didn't seem to matter at all. Like all the decisions were made in the White House. It feels to me coming out of the Trump era that these cabinet picks are hugely important because of how much Trump has changed the business of government, how much talent he drove out of government, how much uh, how much expertise was lost, how much work that was done by agencies traditionally in this kind of like boring, competent way is no longer being done in that way or has been warped. I mean, we saw these shocking stories this week about how the CDC was completely trampled by Trump officials when it was trying to do science. So which makes me think that actually these cabinet posts are hugely important in the restoring the competence of government department. Yeah. And also there were a lot of um, regulations that have gone through that are not going to be fast and easy to unwind because they were made, you know, with the more rigorous government mechanism of notice and comment where like it takes a year or two to make the rule. And that means that it takes a while to undo it as well. So I think you're right about that. And that government policy in places like, you know, the EPA and um other agencies has really changed. And I, in my work, found, I mean, Kat, they make so many decisions that the president never basically even knows about. I mean, that's why these debates about who's in the room are more than merely coalition management. And even when the president does make the final decision, these are a lot of the people and the people they pick are the people who put the options in front of the president. And so the president chooses between A and B, but he may not even know that option C exists. Um, or alternatively, where a traditional president would see options A and B, a, n- a different kind of of uh, organization might bring him options A and Q. And that has real, you know, long-term impacts on people's lives. So 
these selections, this is more than just like a parlor game and 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 uh, a Washington fascination. This will this will really matter with policymaking. It doesn't feel to me, John, like the Lloyd Austin situation is going to escalate too much. So Lloyd Austin is this re- till recently active duty general who has been who will be nominated to be Secretary of Defense. Uh, and would be the first black secretary of defense. And there is this concern, which was voiced by a lot of Democrats when Jim Mattis, also similar, similar kind of position, was nominated to be Trump's secretary of defense. And he had got a waiver. Mattis got a waiver to serve in that role, which is very historically has been really locked in for civilians. So there is this question about whether having another general in, this, in the role of secretary of defense is, is sending that department in a, in a bad direction for the future. And I wonder what you guys think about that. I mean, I just to, to, to tip my hat, I mean, is yes, uh, it is uh, civilian control. is a very important part of the American system. What's remarkable is how well mil- the military has behaved though, that as institutions go in this country under Trump in particular, like it's just basically done a really good job. It's a really it's, a, it's an institution where its institutional controls and rules and traditions have 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 withstood a, a degree of assault. I find myself not being too worked up over the prospect of a former general because because it feels like these they, these the mili- people in the military are so respectful of rules and institutions, and so that's the kind of person you want running a department. If you're expecting the president to constantly test the boundaries of the line between civilian and military, um, if you have a traditional president, you have a different set of worries. And one of them might be that you don't have fresh thinking and that you have a kind of military style of thinking that needs to be freshened. And this Mm -hmm. is with respect to using power, American power to assert influence or not using the power. You also create potentially, the argument goes, um, if you elevate generals too often, you create a hierarchy and and you start teaching generals to care about what they do because they may one day, you know, have the chance of being secretary of defense, which they might want. So you have a weird incentive system that you might create there. And then Austin, another challenge is that he was on the board of Raytheon on technologies and the relationship between defense contractors and the Pentagon has always been one that um, people have worried about because the incentives, again, get messed up um, because you don't make policy on for the right reasons. You make it for you know, defense technology reasons. So I think those are all worth d- discussing and debating. And then I think that the larger thing that's interesting to me is this is a reassertion of norms. So people are saying there's this abstract principle of civilian control. You have plenty of input from the military and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, other access the president has to military leaders, but you need this civilian role to protect these traditions and norms that we have decided are important and worth protecting. And how do you reassert those? And, And is it simply enough to say, you know, we trust Biden, so we don't have to worry about these norms? And I think that'll be... That'll be true across a whole set of instances in which Biden comes up against norms and people will say, forget about what Donald Trump did. The fact that he broke all these norms is not sufficient to allow a pass for Biden. And you'll see this competition between abstract ideas and the short term realities and how that plays out will be really, really interesting as we try to see which norms come back and which ones don't. Emily, before we go, last topic I want to talk about is. Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, is going to be Secretary of Transportation if he passes muster. Um, and there's a lot of upset on the progressive left about this. 
I thought there was a characteristically brilliant Matt Iglesias take on why uh, Mayor Pete will be a great transportation or could be a great transportation secretary, um, including his, you know, how uh, how transportation is really the housing department. In fact, that actually where you put where you cite things and how you do things determines a lot of where commerce and housing in this country go. And so if you think about it as a as a uh, as the secretary of real estate, it's actually a different kind of uh, position. Um, but do you think that it's troublesome that the that going back to sort of another version of my earlier question, that the only young person in this cabinet is a middle of the rotor and it, it, the energy, uh, the energy that Mayor Pete will bring and he does bring a ton of energy and smarts and charisma will be directed centrally rather than to the left, where the actual young energy of the Democratic Party is. Well, yeah, I would like to see both. I would like to see three younger people in important roles. And I will also <laughs> note that, I mean, I'm all for people to judge being in the cabinet. I don't have a problem with that. But it's really funny to me that the old people picked the one young person who only old people or mostly old people like, right? I mean, that was the <laughs> rap on Buttigieg during the campaign was that, like, he was young, but the youth were like, eh. So I find that kind of funny. And I think that it shows why you're right, that it shouldn't just be him. Can I just remind people who everybody knows this maybe, but um, the reason it's interesting to me that you have this fight of young versus old progressives versus institutionalists or more moderates is that the energy for reform and energy for change usually comes from the wings and from the youth. This is more, again, than coalition management. This is what what many people believe makes more equitable laws and and is a part of American progress is the is the push that comes from the new generation. And I should also note, we don't know yet who Biden's pick for attorney general is. And right now, um, there is a real push to make sure that person has a strong Certain civil rights young record, lawyer named Emily Bazelon, which I think is really <laughs> important. And there are some amazing civil rights leaders who have great management skills. So they could either be the attorney general, they could be in other real key positions in the Justice Department. And I will be watching that very closely. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. This week's Cocktail Chatter is brought to you by the Winemaker Series featuring Le Loup Gris to try their exclusive Napa Valley Red Blend. Text GABFEST to 351-444-9463. John, what is your chatter? My chatter is, is yet another excellent um, Tom Edsel piece in the New York Times. Oh, so good. Wrote yeah. a mash note myself it. yesterday. I missed it. I'll have to go read it when this, we're done. Are we talking about the same one, about the new sectarianism? Yep. Yeah. I mean, Tom Edsel, both, this is both a general and a specific. First, the specifics of this um, piece are wise and smart and interesting to me because they they vault over the Trump moment, which I tried to do in my book and I keep trying to do, which is to not identify everything as the idiosyncratic element of his presidency, but to look at the bigger, longer trends. And this one looks at the trends in sectarianism and what's going to what's going to last and what we still face as a huge challenge. Um, and to me, what's so interesting about it, of course, is that is that if you have sectarianism that is so strong that even the results of an election in which Joe Biden gets 8 million more votes and 306 electoral votes, and yet millions of people can think after 
unanimity on the question of whether there was fraud, they can still think that there was fraud because facts, reason, and tradition are out the window, then you lose the building blocks of any common understanding that becomes what, or that are the precondition for even the smallest, faintest progress. (laughs) So that's kind of dark, but it's the case. Anyway, so Edsel, um, as he typically does, goes through the political science behind all of this, and um, and it's a great piece. And also, just more broadly, Edsel's writing and work and thinking is always trying to look at the bigger, broader forces and why they're important. And and you know, so he's always great to to read. And so if that got you depressed, um, I would also like to recommend uh, a little uh, documentary from um, The New Yorker, and it's called Inside the Workshop of a Classic Toy Inventor, Eddie's World. It's about this guy, Adolf Eddie Goldfarb, who who invented the chattering teeth, along with 799 other toys. Um, He was a, um, he was in the Navy and... um, uh, it's just about his life, his outlook, his optimism, and has very cool drawings of early toys. Um, so that's a very uplifting and um, human piece. And holiday Emily, appropriate. Uh, yes. Emily, what is your chattering teeth? My chattering nice. teeth is um, a story coming out of Los Angeles. So L.A. elected George Gascone as district attorney in November, who is already making progressive changes, like getting rid of asking for bail in some cases and looking back at thousands of excessive sentences related to three strikes. What's happening is staff prosecutors starting to already try to sabotage these efforts, putting forth, uh, you know, anonymous public statements about how everybody is united against Gascon and the, the line in this memo, we will still be here in 2024, meaning we're going to outlast this guy. He thinks he's going to make change, but forget it. And this is a pattern we've seen over and over again when people making progressive promises get elected district attorney. It's going to be really interesting to see it play out in L.A. because it's such a huge city. So there's just a lot at stake. And if you are interested in this story or really any story about politics and criminal justice, you should be following Taniel at Taniel on Twitter, which is the um, Twitter of Daniel Nakanian, who is the editorial director of the Political Report for the Appeal, and is just all over the DA's politics, the sheriff's races. Um, he's just totally my go-to source for all of this stuff. All right, my chatter. I tried our wine sponsor's wine, Le Loup Gris Napa Blend. It's totally delicious. And so while I have an early morning sip of that, I will be chattering about a really amazing and heartbreaking story in the New York Times. Emily, you have some incredible colleagues over there. Azam Ahmed has a story uh, about a woman named Miriam Rodriguez, who is a mother in a town called, or city, small city called San Fernando, Mexico, whose daughter was kidnapped and killed. And she then, you know, she was understandably... uh, completely blown apart by this and and lost lost everything lost the kind of central animating force of her life and she devoted the next several years to simply tracking down every single person who'd been involved in her daughter's abduction and murder finding them where the police wouldn't and getting them arrested disguises you know tracking people for weeks and weeks and weeks insinuating herself and at uh, one point holding somebody at gunpoint 
waiting for the police to come and actually make the arrest. And then, of course, the the denouement is that only she herself was, of course, then murdered by those that she saw. It is a chilling, astonishing, terrible, awful story. And actually, there's a whole other separate story of abduction and death within it of a whole other family. And it's just about what happens, what it is to live in a city controlled by criminal gangs, by murderous, murderous criminal gangs who are, don't care about the value of human life uh, of those they they uh, don't need or, or their enemies. It's beyond awful and just astonishing. Listeners, uh, you tweet chatter to us at at Slate Gabfest. Whoof! Lost, like, couple hours this week thanks you're destroying CityCast because you have sent so much chatter that i have to go look at this it's is so David's good favorite thing though this is like now you have a personal feed of like great random it's so finds. good it's so good um another actually somewhat grim one though that i picked it's from at green neck and it's about how the western it's about the western monarch butterfly there are two big classes of monarch butterflies somewhere more south and then more north um, the main pool is the eastern monarch butterfly, which overwinters in Mexico and then comes uh, and spends its summers up north in the United States. And that population is okay, but the western monarch butterfly population is apparently basically gone. And this account, an annual count that's done in California, which historically, I mean, used to find millions and millions of butterflies. And a few years ago, it was finding several hundred thousand. And this year, it found only 2,000 monarchs. It appears that we've destroyed the species, that the species has been murdered by us. So congratulations, us. It's a story from baynature.org. It's grim. This is our last regular show of the year. Next week, we're going to do our great favorite conundrum show, the most wonderful time of the year, as in conundrums. So listen for that. And the final thing before credits is just a quick shout out to some new Slate Plus members who have signed up specifically because of the GabFest. And we so thank them. So Sarah Culpin in Healdsburg, California. Thank you. Sarah Rose in Las Vegas. Mina Sarin, Saarinen in Helsinki. Oh, that's great. Thomas White in Brick Township, New Jersey. Jennifer Johnson in Denver. Carolyn Birch, hello, in Sydney, Australia. Sarah Valinsky in Gay Paris. Hello, Sarah. Or bonjour, as we say. Tom Nickel in Newcastle, Washington. Susan Bradshaw in Maitland. Nina Tate in Bedford, Massachusetts. Ryan Ulrich in Westmoreland, New Hampshire. Stephen Scott in Prospect, Kentucky. Stephen Americaner in Maplewood, New Jersey. Laura Bedford in New Hartford, Connecticut. Walt Sorg in Lansing, Michigan. David Rowe also in Sydney, Australia. Maybe you should meet Carolyn Birch, David Rowe. David Wolf in Hebron, Illinois. And Nicole Benacasa in Brooklyn. Thank you all for signing up to Slate Plus because of the GabFest. That's our show for today. We are produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas, managing producer. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest, where you can tweet chatter to us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week about conundrums. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? I want to turn you to a story that our beloved John Dickerson did for 60 Minutes this past weekend on excited delirium. It is a, an amazing and infuriating story about, uh, it centers on the death of a young man named Elijah McLean who died in police custody in Aurora, Colorado after he was subdued uh, from an incident that never should have happened. 
never should have happened. Um, but he was subdued by the police, not clear that he needed subduing at all, with a huge dose of ketamine, which eventually killed him. Um, John, walk us through, I mean, you can talk a little bit about the Elijah McClain case, but this this uh, phrase, which I'd never heard of, and I think maybe you hadn't even heard of when you started right. the story, excited delirium. Um, Sarah Koch, the producer on the piece, had been investigating the George Floyd murder case, um, along with Chrissy Jones, the um, associate producer. And they had, in the course of that, heard the term used because one of the junior officers in the Floyd arrest on that, you know, on the videotape mentions excited delirium. And so they um, started looking into it. And then I and then we got hooked up as a team. And so. Basically, the story, as we told it, was the process of discovery. And what we discovered is basically it is a term that is widely used by the police and paramedics to describe what they say is a syndrome in which the suspect's life is threatened by a kind of sudden burst of extreme strength, wild behavior, and that this can be the kind of behavior that happens right before they die. That's what the, the, some of the police and the and the paramedics say. What the medical um, community says, or a, there's kind of a split, but basically the, lots of people in the medical world are deeply skeptical of over whether excited delirium even exists as a condition. The criticism is that it's not a discrete condition. It's just people misidentifying underlying conditions. That's one set of debate. And then there's another set that says, okay, it does exist, but it's super, super rare. And it's been over-diagnosed in the field to to justify two kinds of things. One, over-restraint uh, by police, or, or what some people call police abuse. And then the this use of ketamine, which is a super powerful sedative that's given in hospitals and under very tightly monitored conditions because it can lead to cardiac arrest and all kinds of other complications. So you can imagine how troublesome it could be on a curb or you know in somebody's front yard after an encounter with the police. There's obviously also the claim from its skeptics that excited delirium is a post hoc rationalization for police abuse and death in custody of young black men. And so it has all of these different complexities. And so that's the story we told talking to people who have uh, the mother of one person who'd been given it. If you misdiagnose it and miss the underlying condition, you can end up giving ketamine to somebody who's just having a diabetic shock, which is the wrong thing to give them. And that was the case of one of the people we talked to. And then an, an EMT we talked to who had been asked to use basically ketamine as a way to, to calm uh, a patient who could actually just be talked down from his wild behavior. I just thought this was such an excellent, smart, hard-hitting piece because excited delirium, I mean, there are all the things you said and every step of it is chilling. So you watch the Elijah McClain footage. You can see that like he is agitated because the police are stopping him and in his view, I think clearly threatening him in a way that he doesn't understand. And I don't, as the mother of sons, like I don't know how you listen to that footage and you don't identify with it and just feel deep fear for this kid. You know, it's chilling and we couldn't get it in the piece, but I talked to his mother, Shanine McClain and and she says that she listens to the audio tapes and looks at the video because it's the even as chilling and as awful as it is, it's the closest she can come to her son. So can you imagine looking to that for comfort? No, um, that's horrifying. That's really upsetting. 
just to continue the upsetting notion, it's like this excited delirium, quote, diagnosis. It then becomes a way of blaming the victim for their own demise, essentially, once you've given them this incredibly powerful ketamine, which they never should have received in the first place. And then you interview the prosecutor in Aurora, who comes off as like, incredibly defensive, scarily so, of the police and their conduct. And the fact that excited delirium is cited in the cause of death becomes a reason not to press charges against the police because suddenly you don't have clear evidence of homicide because you literally are blaming the person for their own death. I just, that constellation, and then the sort of whistleblower footage you have of this EMT who is getting, you know, criticized and pummeled by his supervisors for not going along with giving ketamine in a circumstance like this, it was all just really, really upsetting. Yeah. I, his, you know, it, when I asked him, you know, did they think you were making them less safe? Um, you know, the, basically the police were saying, why are you... Why are you holding out? Why are you on trying us? to calm someone down in some way that doesn't involve giving them this hugely scary drug injection? Yeah, because you're making you know our lives are at risk. Um, another thing I heard from was that interested me was that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com/gabfest plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. (laughs) 